If you have a Bible, please make your way to Genesis 2 this morning. Genesis 2 is where we're going to be, and I'm looking forward to bringing the word to you today. It was our first home. Katie cleaned out what used to be a storage room and painted it light blue. I put together new furniture, a rocking chair, a changing table, a crib. Katie repainted her old dresser that she had when she was a child. She repainted it white and then put pink knobs on all the door handles. We hung letters and pictures on the wall. We got our monitor set up so we could hear everything that was going to happen in that room. And once it was done, we'd walk down that hallway probably about every day just to take a peek into that room because we were so excited about who was going to be there in just a few months. What were we preparing for? The arrival of our first child, the arrival of a life. And our baby's life was already very precious to us. And the new room in our first house for this new life must be beautiful and safe. That's, of course, the goal of parents as they're preparing that space for their child, that it would be beautiful and safe. This morning, we step deeper into an incredible chapter in the book of beginnings, the book of origins, the book of Genesis. People hear a lot about chapter one because it's filled with the opening words of the most distributed book in the history of the world, very famous words of creation. And so people are very well aware of what happens within chapter one. People are probably even more aware of what happens in chapter three with the fall of humanity, with the serpent, with the eating of the forbidden fruit and the brokenness of humanity. But people don't often hear much about Genesis two. And Genesis two, really, maybe the only time you've heard about it is when you're at a wedding, when you hear the last few verses of the chapter. But the first part, talking about the rivers and the garden and Eden, maybe you haven't heard many sermons on that part of the text and on paradise itself. But here, especially the verses we're looking at today, it gives us just a window into what life was like in paradise. Paradise is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which means garden. And so that's where it comes from. And we see this picture of life before the fall, the life that Adam and Eve experienced with God before they fell into sin. In Genesis 2 and Eden, the focus here in the chapter is on God's provision for his creations, for humanity, his protection over them, his affection for Adam and Eve. And just like the arrival of a baby being precious to her parents, the arrival of human life was very precious to God, and their home had to be beautiful and safe. And that's what we find. That God created us ultimately in this garden, in this Eden, for fellowship and for faithful service to him in the kingdom of God, which was the earth at the time. Why does God, or why does any of this matter to us today? It's a very important reason why we should pay attention to these verses as we get into it. And we're talking about something that no longer really exists as it does now. And that is because this is God's design for things. And when we understand his design for things, the way he set it up, the way he established it, then we'll not just have a better understanding of how, uh, how things, why things have gone so badly today, but it will also give us a hope for what is to come. 
That one day God will restore all things back into this paradise, back into this state of the garden that we read about here in Genesis 2. And that gives us courage. That gives us hope to live for the gospel. Because when we know our future, when we know where we're headed, when we know the type of reality that we're meant to bring into the world, then that will help us to overcome the trials and troubles that we face. And so that's why we dive in to Genesis 2 this morning with that posture to see what life was like with God in paradise. The paradise that one day for all of those who've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will one day experience again. And in the meantime, the type of place, the type of paradise garden where we can even catch glimpses of it. And break through pieces of it into this earth as we demonstrate the love and the truth of the gospel. And so in Genesis 2, we'll find out that paradise, it was delightful, it was rewarding, and it was ruled. So we'll look into each of these and we'll we'll basically just kind of walk through the verses for a little while. So I'm just going to do some explanation and then we'll get into some application as we uh, walk through these verses just one by one basically uh, and, and describe what's happening here. So first what we see is that life with God in paradise was delightful. It was delightful. Look at verse 4. It starts with this statement, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth And the heavens, these are the generations. It's like a new chapter heading in the book of Genesis. It separates the major sections of the book. Moses utilized this phrase 10 times, and that basically is the breakdown of the whole letter. And this section, the story of chapter 2 through 4, it is a devastating portion. It's the worst part of all of human history. Because chapter 2, we see what life was like in paradise. Chapter 3, we see the loss of paradise. In chapter 4, we see the escalation of evil as Cain falls into sin and rebellion just like his parents did and ultimately murders his own brother. Now look at verse 5 as it begins this section. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, a few things about this portion. The difference between a bush and a small plant is that a small plant was just the way that the Hebrews would refer to a plant that was edible. And so the bush, you couldn't eat. The plants, you could eat. And so the point Moses is making is that two things are needed for the land to produce edible food. Irrigation and man's activity, man's work. In other words, without man to work it, the land remains uncultivated, even if there was plenty of water. Most of us really have a hard time appreciating appreciating the close connection that we as people have with the ground, with the land, with the earth. Uh, All of our food, for example, it looks nothing like the animals it came from when we pick it up. I mean, some of you, when you go hunting and you've been through the whole deal and you got the deer and you do all the stuff, maybe you've been through that process. But for most of us, we just see it in nice styrofoam-wrapped packages with minimal like issues. And if it looks nasty, we don't pick it up. There's no fur on it. There's no guts to clean. It's there. It's prepared. It's ready. We could pick up whatever fruits and vegetables we'd like. And for the most part, most of us don't do the cultivating, the farming, the working of the soil of the ground to produce that food. We just pick it up. Now, here in Romeo, there's a few more than most. 
there's 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 of you that would do those things. And some of you, uh, it's probably good that you're not dependent on your own land because I know what your crop was this year. And it wouldn't have sustained you. <laughs> but uh, we don't see this process play out. So we lose our connection in many ways to the land. One writer put it this way, that the land is our cradle, it's our home, it's our grave, and it is all of these things. Maybe uh, you like to make fun of people who are tree huggers and green activists. Whenever I go to Portland, Oregon, I always kind of chuckle because they won't let you pump your own gasoline in case you might drip, you know, one or two little pieces. And, and yet, at the same time, conservation is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. It should matter to us. It's not a joke to be passed off as a low priority as if this world does not matter. It is something to be protected and stewarded. And so we see this here. We see that man's involvement in this land is meant to bring about all that was uh, able to sustain life. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust So we are created from dust and we return to dust. From the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. It's a play on words between Adam and the ground. Because the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. And so they take the same name, the same word for ground. And that's how God gave Adam that name. The connection between the two. And think about the intimacy of the scene. God is not some distant, far-off, uninvolved being who was not there when man was formed, when humanity came into existence. It wasn't some kind of theistic evolutionary process by which it slowly kind of happened. This story, the real history of it, is that God is very present and close and in an intimate space with the man. And he exhales life. He literally exhales life. And as he exhales life and breathes life into Adam, Adam finally takes that first breath. Life, in other words, is from God. There is no life apart from God. You might be breathing, but there is no life Apart from God, it's a very real picture that we see here that God breathes life into him. God is life. And without his breath, we are lifeless. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. In your soul. In who you are. Just lifeless. There's not joy. There's, there's not the breath of God. There's not happiness and pleasure. There's just struggle and empty and pain. Well, did you know that God is the only one who can breathe life back into your soul? You look for it in some other place, you won't find it. You can try, but only he has the breath of life. And we see that so clearly here in this text. Paul quotes this verse to talk about the new life that we have in Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, referring to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus said this himself, John 10, I came that they may have life 
John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 5, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you may have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. He's speaking of himself. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's saying there's only one place to find real life in this world. It's through Jesus Christ. He was there at the beginning. He breathed life into our nostrils, and he can breathe life into your soul. And once he breathed life into humanity, he put him in the garden. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. People are always trying to figure out where Eden was. It's a good question, you know, as if it was some place that's still hidden from our sight or whatever it might be, or maybe it's in modern-day Iraq, which was historic Babylon, uh, Mesopotamia. But, But those aren't the questions that really matter. The better question is, what was Edom like? What was Eden like? Because that will give us hope for what is to come. That is what we can hold on to when life reminds us we're not in God's garden anymore. Instead, we're in the devil's desert. That's what it feels like. And that's actually what the the Bible narrative tells us, that God's presence is here through us, through his spirit in us, through the ongoing ministry of the gospel. But Paul calls Satan the God, lowercase g, temporary ruler of this world until God restores things. And so for now, that's what it feels like. We're in a desert. It doesn't feel like the garden anymore. So if we catch a glimpse of the garden, that gives us the hope to live for Christ in the here and now. Look at verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. And that's something I want to key in on here. Pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil pleasant to the sight, it's like God is injecting not just functionality into the garden, but also beauty. It's good for food, it's good for sustenance, it'll keep you alive, but it's also beautiful. He didn't just make it functional, he made it beautiful. And being made in his image means that part of being a human being is to appreciate aesthetics, to appreciate Beauty, we love beautiful people, we love beautiful things. I'm sure most all of you have seen the show. We've seen it many times. I was just watching it yesterday, the show Fixer Upper on HGTV. It is the top-rated show on HGTV with an estimated 4.3 million viewers a week. It's the highest-rated TV show ever for that network. And you know how it works. So Chip and Joanna Gaines, they work with a couple to find the worst house in the best neighborhood. The worst house in the best neighborhood. And once they find the fixer-upper, Chip and Joanna remodel, they rework, redesign the property into the couple's dream home all within an hour. It's amazing (laughs) how fast they work. I have no idea how that's done. But why do so many Americans love the show? Well, of course, it's because they're likable. They're a likable couple. They're entertaining. They're fun to watch. But but there's another reason that I think is a deeper reason and probably more significant of a reason. Another reason is that we get to see this process from beginning through the end, this renovation process, and it always has a happy ending. 
But the ending isn't just happy. The ending is also always beautiful. It's a beautiful ending, not just a happy ending, a beautiful ending. And if you've seen the homes, I know you've thought it because I've thought it. And it's, will they please come to Michigan and fix my house? <laughs> or you think, can I just move to Texas and have them fix my house there? I, I know you've thought it, and so you're watching it, and you're like, man, that's, that's beautiful. And look how happy they are. And I'd probably cry, too, if I saw this poster removed and see this house. And you walk in, and of course, the house is functional. There's a kitchen. There's restrooms. There's all the things that you need. There's bedrooms. There's places to do life. But it's also very, very beautiful. And so, so often, especially with men, if I could just stereotype for a moment. I don't mean to, but I have to. Or just like, just give me the data, just give me the truth. Just give me the food so I can have what I need to get through the next thing. It, here's the deal. We are not just functional people. We are meant to appreciate beauty. Why? Because that's how we're designed. And that's who God is. And that's what the garden was like and filled with. So what's the point? Seek beauty. But seek the beauty of God. Where do you seek beauty? God could have made the garden merely functional. He didn't. It was plush, splendid, beautiful. And beauty is powerful and it can be intoxicating. People, cars, jewels, things. We usually think of God as powerful and merciful and wise, but we don't usually always think of him as beautiful. The psalmist helps us here. He writes in Psalm 27, One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. Here's the one thing that he wants to seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Perhaps pornography will cease to intoxicate you when, God's, when God does instead. Perhaps material things will cease to intoxicate you when God does instead. Where do you seek beauty. The garden is also rich in resources. Notice how plush it is with all the things that sustain life. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and since God himself was in the garden, it makes sense that this tree was there. Trees were often in scripture used to symbolize life. We find this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs describes wisdom as a tree of life. It, it, it describes the fruit of the righteous as a tree of life. We'll get back to the other tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in a minute. But for now, the abundance of these trees and this plush garden and water in the garden also depicts the abundance of life in it, the delightful state that was created for humanity. Look at verse 10. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Why all the description? Why are we all of a sudden reading like a Lord of the Rings description of the land of Rohan? You know what? 
Why is it here? It's, it's meant to tell us the abundant, beautiful, rich, delightful environment that God created for humanity. Why does it matter? I've said it twice already because if we have this picture in our heads, it will give us hope and courage to live through this life because we know what our future is. Because we know where we're headed. It was also not just delightful, it was also rewarding. Look at verse 15. Now the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Let me talk about the words here for a moment. There's something very important to see. God took the man and put him in the garden. The word for put could also be translated in Hebrew to also mean rest or safety. Other times it refers to something offered to the Lord, like a sacrifice. So God placed Adam in the garden where he could rest and be safe and where he was dedicated to God to have fellowship with God, to offer up his work to God as worship. Now verse 15 tells us what Adam's job was. It's his vocation, but don't miss this. Before we are told what Adam does in the garden, we are told who Adam is, that Adam is safe at rest, in the presence of God, created by God, then once his identity is settled, then he's given a job. Why does that matter? Because we do not find our identity in the work that we do. We find it in who we are in Christ. Not in what other people say or in our accomplishments that we think will bring us value in this world. It's our identity is already set when we know who we are and whose we are. Then we're able to press into our work with joy. So that's what Adam does. What does he do? He is given this job of working and keeping the garden. Work is often translated serve. Keep can also mean guard. So Adam's role is to work the garden, which is an act of worship to God. It's also to guard the garden, which he failed to do because he let the serpent in, which we'll see in chapter 3. So we work and keep, serve and guard. Work was meant then to be a privilege. Notice that work is created before the fall. We often think of work as just like torture. (laughs) It's something that we don't enjoy. It's not life-giving. Isn't it interesting that work was created for humanity before the fall? Because it's meant to be who we are and what we do. It's meant to give us purpose. It's meant to help us actually reflect the very character of God in the world. Work is meant to be a privilege, a pleasure. We need to see that our work on this earth is an act of worship. I was at Chick-fil-A's headquarters all of last week. It was wonderful. I love their chicken sandwiches. I love their chicken sandwiches. If I could pick a single restaurant to go to in the world, it would not be Capitol Grill or a steakhouse. It would be a milkshake, waffle fries, and two of those chicken sandwiches. I absolutely love them. I was so happy when a Chick-fil-A came to Michigan and came to Somerset Mall. We'll, we'll make the trek as much as we can. How many of you were happy about that move of that company? You guys, are, you guys are totally missing out. That was totally lame. Have you ever had a Chick-fil-A sandwich 
then you should make some noise because when we go on vacation and get off the plane, when we get our rental car, you know our first stop is not our hotel and it's not the ocean, it's Chick-fil-A. And Katie and I have always been that way. She'll tell you it's true. You should be excited about that. And not only that, the owner of that Chick-fil-A in Somerset Mall is a member of Woodside. So that means occasionally I try to play that pastor card and get free stuff, (laughs) which is awesome. I have some of their frozen chicken nuggets in my freezer as we speak. So I was at Chick-fil-A last week. And, and, and I loved having their food, and I loved the whole time, and they were talking about their business model, which was fascinating. We were thinking about what connections it has to our gospel ministry, but they said something that had an impact on me. They asked this question, what do we say to our bosses or to people when they say thank you for doing something our job required? So thank you for finishing that re- project. Thank you for doing that report. Thank you for leading that meeting. Thank you for running that errand. Thank you for taking care of that issue. We typically would respond and say, no problem. No problem. Uh, Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, had an issue with that statement. Because he understood that it's not our problem to serve people. It's not a problem to serve other human beings. So that's why when you go to a Chick-fil-A, you'll never hear no problem when you say thank you for somebody picking up your trash or serving you your food. What's their response? My pleasure. Isn't that a difference? You know what's fascinating is I was at this headquarters last week surrounded by um, Bubba Cathy. He's one of their, the brothers who owns the company, the, the VPs, the CFOs, all their bigwigs were there to talk to these churches. And they hung out with us for like two or three days. They opened our doors. They were last to eat their food. And every time they'd pick up a piece of trash or bring us a drink, and this is what they were doing. I think these are men and women of extensive resources and yet they were just serving us for three straight days and every time I'd say thank you they'd say my pleasure it's fascinating to me that it's also something that didn't seem fake it was like real it was authentic they believed what they said and when you go to their restaurants it's fascinating that they built this culture into their employee uh, uh, environments where you go there and if you're thinking about a job that you don't want to do for your whole life, it's, well, I guess I have to go work at McDonald's. It's in the fast food industry. And yet when you talk to these men and women, even in the restaurants who are working in the fast food industry, and they say, my pleasure, it seems like they believe it. It is their pleasure to work. It is their pleasure to serve. Here's the thing. Work becomes our pleasure when the most important thing about our work is to worship God and the least important thing about our work is our paycheck. Work becomes our pleasure when our goal changes from getting rich off of other people to being rich towards other people. Paul said it to the wealthy people that Timothy was leading in his church, 1 Timothy chapter 6, they are to do good, he says of them, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they might take hold of that which is truly life. 
just like God, as imitators of God, as people created in the image of God, our work is meant to create value in people's lives, not extract value from people's lives. Create value, not extract value. When you create value in people's lives, that's when you will feel pleasure. Are you miserable working? Or is work your pleasure? How can a person just throwing breaded chicken and peanut oil be so happy about what they're doing? Because they understand the greater purpose. Because they understand when they pick up that tray and they serve you, and they show that kindness. If you've ever been to a Chick-fil-A restaurant, you notice this is not like all those other places. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Are you trying to get rich off of people? Or are you trying to be rich towards people? Are you creating value in people's lives or extracting value from people's lives? Are you working only for your kingdom or for God's kingdom by serving not only in your jobs, but also serving his family, his church. So some of you might have a decision to make, not just in your job and your posture towards your job, your vocation that brings in a paycheck, but also maybe even your job towards your church family, your spiritual family, as a member of the household of God, the church. See, see just like in your regular job, work begins by doing what? Showing up. <laughs> So if I could just kind of go on a soapbox for a moment, and yeah, I know I'm a pastor, and yeah, I know I'm part of Woodside Bible Church, and yeah, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir a little bit, but I'm going to say it anyways. It drives me nuts that when you see all the studies, all you see in church attendance amongst the core Christians, evangelicals in our nation is decline, decline, decline. We don't need to show up. The average attender now shows up one to two times a month. Well... If we don't show up, and when we do show up and we leave and we're like, well, I, I didn't really get much pleasure out of that, perhaps is that because we're not doing the work that we were created to do? Because the work creates the pleasure. If we do not work, we do not receive the fruit of that work. Millions of people go to work. They go to work in their jobs. They might even go to their churches to work, and when you make the investment in the work, you receive the fruit of that work. If you go to those places and you don't work, well, it's no wonder it feels miserable. If you're going to those places and extracting value, not creating value, if you're just trying to get rich, you're gonna feel empty. It will leave you lifeless. Breathing, but lifeless. And I wonder how many here today feel that way right now. When we work the way that God intended, it becomes our pleasure. What was life like in paradise with God? It was delightful. It was rewarding. And last, it was ruled. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the first time we see God speaking to Adam. 
And he gives him a command. The command has a few parts to it. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. In chapter three, the serpent twists God's words and makes it seem like God is restrictive and secretive. God doesn't want me to have something that will actually enhance my life. He's keeping me from it, so he's secretive and restrictive. That's the deception. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. I cannot wait to preach that message. But the opposite is actually the truth. His command is generous and permissive. He says, Eat from every tree. Eat from the tree of life. You will have eternal life, eternal fellowship in my presence, eternal joy, and eternal purpose. You will have all of this. It's yours. It's, it's all right here. Here's an entire garden. Here is paradise for you. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy one another. Enjoy eating. Enjoy working. Enjoy playing. Enjoy my presence. It was a life of enjoyment. They had one rule. Now, instead of looking at that rule and saying, well, why did they have that rule? I look at them, I'm like, I wish I only had one rule in life. Think back to when we were kids. It wasn't like, if I just had one rule, that'd be awesome. My kids have like hundreds of thousands of rules, stated and unstated, and I expect them to understand the unstated ones even though they don't really understand them. <laughs> rules, rules, one rule. Eat from every tree except for the one that's prohibited. Now, why was that tree prohibited? That's a less important question than the fact that it was prohibited. But if you want to know why, there is an answer. So in the garden, there was one law, one command, do not eat from this tree. The command places Adam and humanity, the whole race, under God's lordship. And when we're found underneath of God's lordship, that's when we experience life as intended and when we remove ourselves from God's lordship and step outside of his commands, that's when life loses the sense of purpose and pleasure, and all of a sudden we've introduced death. So why? Well, it places us in our proper position under the lordship of the king of kings. And it makes it clear that humans are not autonomous. That's the point. We're not autonomous. God breathed life into us and we find our life only in him and if we don't feel life maybe we need to return to him so god created us for fellowship and faithful service a pleasure to serve his kingdom to be a human being in the fullest sense is to live under god under his rule that's actually what it means to be human in the greatest sense, full of pleasure and satisfaction, is to live under his rule. And when we don't, oh, we might not die right away, but we've moved away from what brings life and embraced a world that takes away life. And when we move away from God's commands and move towards the world, that world extracts value. It does not create it. This is why Jesus came, because on the cross he bore the full weight of our disobedience. His death, 
human beings extracting his life. Literally, he stopped breathing. And in his silence, breath of eternal life was breathed out to all those who would believe. Through death, life, extracting value, creating value. This is why he came. This is why John says in the book of Revelation, to the one who conquers, to the one who stays faithful, to the one who commits their life to Christ, gives their life to Christ, and continues in Christ, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Christian hope is that through faith in Jesus Christ, right now, we have access to the close relationship with God that Adam once enjoyed but lost. Only through Jesus can we once again have access to the tree of life. It's the only way. He created paradise, he created a garden. It's been lost, but it will be restored. And spiritually what that means is it's restored when we trust Jesus alone to breathe life back into our empty souls. And that's the only way to gain it. There's no other option. There's no plan B. There's no being in charge and just finding it. It's always temporary. It's always fleeting. It's only found in him. Physically, it's restored as we worship God through our work and bring value and beauty and meaning to people's lives as we follow God's commands. And as we continue the work of Jesus Christ, we'll get a taste We'll see a glimpse of what life was like and will be like in paradise with God. It's not depressing, it's delightful. It's not regretful, it's rewarding. It's not rebellious, it's ruled. So, how are you this morning? Are you filled with God's pleasure? Okay. <laughs> as you think about your life, as you think about Christianity, and as I close this morning, this is the thing, friends. When people look at us, if they see no pleasure in our work, if they see no pleasure in our worship, if they see no pleasure in our relationship with God, then do you think they're going to desire what we're saying is so wonderful? No. They're going to look and say, I don't want that. I don't want to be. That's depressing. That's sad. That, that's a horrible life. And yet what we find here is when we actually experience the very pleasure of God, understanding the way he's created us, the, the garden, the paradise, the relationship that's already been restored through Jesus Christ, everything that we do under his command, under his rule, within even the confines of a broken world, it truly becomes our pleasure, joy, happiness, a smile, it's okay to hug somebody and shake a hand, or when we sing a song, just actually be joyful. It's okay to express beauty and appreciation for beauty as we live under his rule. Where are you this morning? Is work miserable for you? Is church just something to consume? 
is the garden and the image of God in relationship with him delightful to your eyes? And are you living under his ruling, his kingship? That's the only place where you'll find life. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Father, we want to just respond this morning and say, okay, there are parts of me and times and seasons when I have clearly walked away from these principles. I know there have been for me, Father. Time where work is just a chore, where serving people is the last thing on my mind because I want to serve myself. We're serving others and creating value in their lives, whatever vocation you've called us to, where that is the farthest thing from my mind, Father, because I'm just trying to simply make life easier, more pleasurable. And yet, Father, true pleasure is only found in your breath. You are life. You're your kingship, your commands over us. It is life. It's not repressive. It's life. Father, I pray that if there be any here this morning that have been pursuing pleasure, pursuing joy, pursuing a delightful life, a rewarding life, a ruled life, but in their own way, that they would see this morning, Father, through your word, that it is fleeting and it is not, it, they have not achieved what they set out for. We can only find that through Jesus Christ. So I pray for those who are here that if they've never received him and placed their life fully under his lordship, they would submit to you now and say, Jesus, I give you my life. Your dying breath brought me life. The way that we extracted value from you, we murdered you, it created life. So forgive me. Help me to experience the life that you desire. For all of us who are in Christ, Father, we so quickly run away from your commands. We so quickly run from the garden. Run from your lordship. And we're miserable. And Father, you've given us your spirit and Jesus has told us it's the spirit of truth and joy and will fill us with pleasure. So Father, we give our lives to you once again. We return to you today. We want our work both in the world and our work both here in your family to bring us pleasure. We want it to be our pleasure to serve you. And it is. So Father, even as we respond, would you receive our prayer? Would you receive our confession? Would we leave this place of people filled with your joy, filled with the delight of Christ, the reward of being in Christ, under the rulership of Christ? And in all these things, we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's respond together. Who's ready to sing? It's a song that's a prayer. It starts out that way, so sing it as a prayer. As it builds and as the words grow, let it be an act of worship, work, delightful work for the King of Kings.